Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly, and if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior. Samuel 15, starting in verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek, and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in uh, Talium, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Emelech and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said uh, to the Kenites, Go depart. Go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to, uh, to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them all, or them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Thank you, Isaac. Remember again this morning that though the grass withers, and though the flower fades, that the word of our God remains forever. Let's just ask his help as we look at his word this morning. Father, we come before you, and Lord, we acknowledge that you are our creator and sustainer, Lord, that you are holy, and Father, that your, your thoughts are not our thoughts. And so, Lord, we sometimes come to difficult questions or passages in your word, and I pray that you would help us to understand them, Lord, in the context of the scriptures, and Lord, 
um, to just humbly come before you. And uh, Lord, that your spirit would give insight, that my words would be a, a blessing to your people, and that we would, Lord, um, just grow in the knowledge of you through your word together. Father, even as we think about, uh, Lord, that the fact that you are holy and just and the, the, the judgment that is coming upon this earth, Lord, that, that we would live as people with a sense of urgency, Lord, not as though, um, Lord, we are, are meant to invest ourselves in, Lord, our own pursuits, but that we would be a people who seek first your kingdom, Lord, the advancing of your name and glory, even among all the nations. And so we just ask your help, and Lord, that uh, we would see you clearly, and Lord, that Christ would indeed be glorious Savior to each one, Father, seeing the beauty of what he has done in taking upon himself this great wrath, Lord, that was due us. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. One of the uh, great blessings of preaching through books of the Bible is that we are not allowed to skip over passages in God's Word that we maybe otherwise would like to skip over. And so while it's a blessing of preaching through the books of the Bible, it's also one of the struggles is we have to sometimes face difficult questions, difficult passages, and by God's grace seek to understand those in light of the rest of the revelation that he's given to us. And that's certainly the case this week as we come to chapter 15. And actually, I had initially intended to look at two difficult questions in this chapter. And as the week went on, I realized that it's really going to be a little overzealous uh, to try and look at both of these questions. So we'll just look at one this morning. Uh, it is this question of God crushing nations at times. Um, God uh, commanding even Saul here to go and destroy completely the Amalekites, showing no mercy to any living thing among the Amalekites. Uh, the other question that comes up in this chapter is, uh, and we didn't, we didn't look at that uh, in our reading this morning, but uh, we, we see this comment that God regrets having put Saul as the king, but then Samuel says later that God is not a God, that he would have regrets. And so there's this question that comes up in this chapter as well, if God is unchanging, why do we see sometimes this language used in the Bible of God changing uh, his mind or regretting uh, that this language? What does that mean? How do we understand that? So we're just going to look this morning at this whole matter of God uh, at times commanding his people to completely annihilate another nation. And of course, this comes even in our own cultural and uh, context today. We you know many, I'm sure, are, are watching what's happening, whether it's in the wars in Ukraine, in Russia, or um, just recently the war that has broke out in Israel. And we have, you know, the Hamas terrorists, their desire is to annihilate another nation. And, and, and we see even the most liberal, progressive politician today, on the one hand, will condemn uh, genocide. And, uh, and, and I guess what is ironic is we hear some of our politicians or the news broadcasters on the one hand condemning, say, Hamas for, for killing uh, children. Uh, all the while, they will, on the other hand, turn around and praise the liberty of Planned Parenthood and the right we have to, to kill our children. And, and you have this really bizarre, uh, just contradictory uh, message coming from even our news outlets in all the events that happen. 
And if you engage with an unbeliever or maybe somebody who for a time has professed faith in Christ and then had, had another time later apostatized, uh, this often is one of those issues that comes up. And sadly, uh, a man that I went to Bible school with and uh, just within the last five years decided that he wanted nothing more to do with, with Christianity. And uh, it's one of these cases where, you know, they have to publicly deconstruct their faith in a very dramatic sort of way. And this was one of the things he kept saying was that, well, the God of the Old Testament uh, is a God who condones genocide. And... It's a, a difficult question to, to, to deal with for us because we have this immediate uh, knee-jerk reaction that would say that's wrong, that that is evil, and yet we know God is holy and good and just. And so these are one of those uh, issues that, that is sometimes difficult for us to know how to answer if someone brings that sort of accusation. How do we even ourselves think about this? Uh, I admit, even in studying this, there are questions that come up in my own mind uh, as to how do these things come together with the fact of God's uh, mercy? And and how do we reconcile, as it were, the the picture of God here in the Old Testament dealing with these sinful nations? And then we see Christ in the New Testament showing mercy to the the homeless and the widow and showing kindness to the the Samaritan or to the the Roman centurion. And and he's a God who is ready and willing to forgive the nations and to show mercy and kindness to them. And yet we have this picture here where God very clearly is telling Saul to gather up his forces and to destroy completely the Amalekites. And so... This follows uh, in our passage. I know we didn't spend a lot of time last week um, at the end of chapter 14, uh, because I think the end of 14 really actually fits more with the section here, because at the end of 14, we have uh, something of a genealogy of Saul. And this was very common uh, among the writings in those times to confirm the identity of who we're talking about. Samuel, as he writes, wants us to be sure this is Saul who we're talking about. And and, and part of doing that, they would give a genealogy. They would give the names of their children, of their wife, or wives in many cases in the Old Testament. And and so we have this picture of Saul, a little bit of genealogy. And also in 52 especially, Saul is increasing in strength. He's increasing in his ability to, to defend the nation of Israel. And we have this picture of Saul gathering to himself any valiant man that he comes across. And if we recall in 1 Samuel 10, 1, when Samuel came to Saul and and was going to anoint him as king, this was one of the things that was told Saul, that he would fight against the enemies of Israel and he would deliver them from their enemies. And so we see, though Saul had many flaws and at times made foolish decisions, He was also an instrument of God's deliverance for the people of Israel. And here we see an instrument of God's judgment against the Amalekites. So in trying to wrestle through some of these difficult questions here, I don't want to simply pass over it. Uh, I want to try to deal with it uh, head on in light of God's word. I want to just look at three considerations that I think are very important as we wrestle with an issue like this, uh, an issue like God commanding Saul to annihilate the Amalekites, not sparing, we find 
uh, man, woman, child, and infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. All living things among the Amalekites are to be destroyed by Saul and his army. And this comes as the command of God himself. Some people, in refusing to deal with this question, will actually just say that Samuel here is not even speaking for God. That Samuel got this wrong. And so they'll just try to just undercut the authority of Scripture in attempt to not deal with a difficult question like this. And I don't think that is reasonable at all. Uh, there's no reason for us to suppose that, that Samuel is making up a command here in any way. He is speaking as a true prophet of God. And uh, he is bringing the word to Saul. And we see Saul is going to be punished because he refused to carry out the clear command of God. So this comes, I believe, as a command of God. And so the first consideration I want us to think about as we look at this issue of God annihilating this nation is first considering the big picture. And I think this is very important when we come to these matters. We have to sometimes uh, zoom out and just remind ourselves of the context of the Bible, of redemptive history, as we wrestle with these sort of questions. Because people who bring accusations against God or against the Bible or the Christian faith, they're unwilling to to look at the big picture, to, to think about the context in which this comes. It's often painted as though God is just mercilessly, uh, without any reason or basis or justification, picking on an innocent, neutral nation that wasn't doing anything wrong, and therefore God is some kind of unjust monster that is preying upon helpless nations. And that's often how this is painted. But if we consider the big picture, we remind ourselves, and this is actually very helpful, even in dealing with an atheist per se, or in our own thinking, um, that in order to actually even bring an accusation or a complaint about something being good or evil, we actually have to first affirm God as the foundation to do that. And, and this is something that uh, is very helpful and is sometimes referred to as presuppositional apologetics. Bit of a mouthful there. It just means that before even engaging in the argument, you ask the question, what are they standing on in order to bring that accusation? So if somebody wants to say, well, this would be an unfair, unjust act if God was to command Saul to do this, you have to ask the question, on what basis are they even calling something good or evil? And it's, it's good and right to point out to the atheist, actually, if you're going to be consistent with your worldview, what you're saying is that we have evolved from space dust. We are basically highly evolved fish at best. And so at that point, how can you really complain about something being good or evil? According to what standard would you say it's good or evil? If you're going to deny a, an, an eternal, omniscient, all-powerful, holy God who transcends all time and culture, who is the basis of good and evil, who is the basis of right and wrong and truth and knowledge, uh, if you're going to deny God, then you've actually already given up any basis for right and wrong. You no longer have a complaint to make. And there are consistent atheists out there um, who, who agree with that, that say, well, there basically is no right and wrong. We, there basically is no moral standard that anyone can appeal to. And we have to understand that in, even for us to have a complaint, we need a fixed basis of right and wrong. And that can only be provided in God himself. 
And so we have to start there, and then we consider the, this, the unfolding of God's word. God, we know from creation, uh, looking at the big picture, is the author of life. He created a world in which there was no sin. There, there, the man and the woman were holy and happy, right, kids? We remember that question from our catechism. How did God make Adam and Eve? He made them holy and happy. Very important to have that big picture view. This is how God had set things up. And we know that sin came in not at God's initiative, not as though God had put it into the heart of Adam and Eve to, to, uh, to break his commandment. But sin came in as the result of man's disobedience to God, the breaking of God's covenant, and therefore death comes as the wages of sin, Romans 6.23. And so the, the death and the destruction and the chaos and the brokenness comes not at God's initiative, but actually as the result of man's disobedience after he listens to the voice of the serpent And essentially brings this darkness and death upon himself. And yes, God sovereignly rules over all things. And we find even even sin itself becomes part of God's plan to redeem us. To display his grace and mercy in Christ. To display his triumph over evil. Over principalities and heavenly places. But we must affirm that sin is the result of man's disobedience, death, the consequence which God promised him. And God, uh, in scripture, we never find God saying that he is the author of evil, the author of sin. He is the one who brought about the consequence he promised Adam and Eve would come. And this affects all mankind. We must also affirm that. We are all born in sin David would say in Psalm 52, 5, that even in sin, my mother conceived me. And so if we want to have a notion of innocent children, of innocent any human, then that's not actually a biblical category. And of course, we understand that there are times which God distinguishes between children and knowing the right from left. But we have to see that sin has so permeated every aspect of society. It has corrupted man in the very core of his being and set him against God. He is hostile to God. We are born, Paul says, as children of wrath. And he even uses this language of children. This is our condition brought on to us by our own disobedience against a holy God. And we must Keep that uh, foundational truth in perspective as we wrestle with some of these difficult questions. So it's right for us to say that really God owes man nothing beyond the fall of Adam and Eve. He owes us no mercy. He owes us no grace. He, He owes us. He doesn't owe us the breath of life that we have. This has all come from him. And really anything beyond the garden is a display of God's patience towards us. As a rebellious people. And also in part of looking at the big picture. It's helpful to think of other cases where we see God judging uh, in in a very severe manner. Of course, as we move through Genesis, um, we know in in Genesis 6, um, maybe some of the young folks can help me out here. Who does God warn that rain is going to fall upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights? Who is it that God warns about this coming judgment 
Noah, right? God comes to Noah and says, I'm going to judge the earth. The sin in, uh, upon this earth has reached a boiling point. The, the, the land itself is becoming corrupted by the sin of humanity. And God says, I'm going to destroy everything, wipe out everything, all the animals, all the trees, all the people, all the families, sparing only Noah and his sons. And so we have these pictures of judgment. And we have, uh, for example, the Canaanites, also a, a godless people following the doctrines of demons. And God warns them in Genesis 15, even as God establishes his covenant with Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to bring you into the land that I've promised and you're going to drive out the nations because of the, the grotesque and vile practices that they have been engaging in. In Leviticus 18, God lists a whole list there in Leviticus 18 of sexual perversion, sexual sin, homosexuality, bestiality, things that we really don't even want to read out loud. And God, after listing these things, he says in verse 24, do not make yourself unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations. So we have to get rid of any notion of these nations being neutral before God, or being simply just minding their own business. They are hostile against God. They have taken what he has entrusted to them and perverted it and distorted it. And they are engaging in, in, in I would say, demonic activity, the worship of idols. We find even there in Leviticus 18, they're offering their children to Molech. So child sacrifice, these are things that the nations have polluted themselves with. And some nations, more than others, like the Canaanites. And so God, using his people as an, as an extension of his judgment and his justice, calls them to drive out these nations and some of them to actually exterminate because of the sin which they have committed. So listen to Deuteronomy 20, for example. God speaking, Moses, he says, But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. So also partly God is saying, in driving these nations out, you are going to protect your offspring from committing the same abominations that they have done. And of course, Israel failed to do that, and as a result, we see them giving themselves over to gross immorality to sexual abuse to even the offering of their children to the demonic gods of the Canaanites. But it's also helpful to know that many times in the midst of God's severe judgment, just judgment, there is also pictures of his mercy and grace. For example, we think about the, the, the command to exterminate the Canaanites 
from the Canaanites, we see a woman, Rahab, who is a God-fearing woman. And after sparing the lives of the spies, God shows kindness to Rahab. And she herself and her family are spared when Jericho is taken. And actually, from the line of this Canaanite woman, Rahab, comes King David, the offspring, uh, leading to Christ. And so we also see these themes of mercy and grace and compassion woven throughout God's judgment upon these wicked nations. Or we might think at times, for example, Nineveh, where Jonah goes to Nineveh, also an evil nation, committing the same abominations that others have, and God telling Jonah that because there are many there that don't know their right hand from their left, and many livestock, God wants him to proclaim a message to repent. And we see God spare Nineveh. Of course, until many years later, they would experience the judgment of God for returning back to their abominations. So we have to keep those big picture themes and biblical truths, uh, I think, in tension with some of these issues. Otherwise, we will begin to to misunderstand the context uh, that, that these commands come So we must consider the big picture. Secondly, we must also consider the Amalekites specifically. That's who God brings this command against from to Saul. Who are the Amalekites? Well, if we go back to Genesis 36, 12, we find there the offspring of Esau. Esau, who set himself against God. He intermarried with the Canaanites, even though his parents told him not to. They urged him to not marry from the pagan nations because he would be led to worship their false gods. And so Amalek comes from the line of Esau. And we see in our passage, as Samuel brings this command to Saul, there is a specific event in mind. Thus says uh, in 1 Samuel 15, 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. So something happened specifically with the Amalekites. And if we go back to Exodus 17. So we have the nation of Israel coming out from Egypt. They have been pursued by the Egyptian army. God delivers them from the Egyptians in the Red Sea. And as they are making their way to Mount Sinai, several nations take advantage of their weakness and their helpless condition and attack them and raid them. And one of those nations is Amalek. We find in Exodus 17, 8, Israel on their way, just trying to peacefully make their way toward where God had told them. And it's this famous battle where Amalek comes and fights with Israel, we're told. At Rephidim. And so Moses tells Joshua to choose men to go out and fight to defend the people of Israel. And Moses stands up on the hill with the staff of God in his hand. And, and whenever Moses is holding up the staff, then, then the people of God are advancing over the enemy. But as Moses' arms get tired and the, he's not able to hold it, then the enemy begins to advance. And so we find Aaron and her go up and help Moses hold up the staff. And the Lord gives them a great victory. Now specifically at the end there in verse 14. After they have defended themselves against this attack. Then the Lord said to Moses. Write this as a memorial in a book. And recite it in the ears of Joshua. 
that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And perhaps you have taken your child at times to a playground and you're watching your child play happily and uh, enjoying themselves. And then another kid comes over and tries to shove them off the top of the slide. And in your heart, you feel this burning sense of rage that, you know, like Superman, you're ready to jump across the playground and throw that child off the, off the top. Not that I would suggest doing that. But you have this clear sense of defensiveness for your child. And if somebody is going to be aggressive towards them, you would lay down your life in order to defend them. And this is a, a right response for a parent. And we see that God, in caring for his children, his bride, bringing her out of bondage, a nation like Amalek, who gives themselves to grotesque sexual immorality, they were a brutal nation, often their tactic was instead of attacking a nation from the front, which were you know, normally as a nation would be moving, the, the strong and the warriors would be in the front to defend the nation. The women and children would be in the back coming behind so that they would have safe passage. While Amalek comes in attacks from behind, knowing the weak and the, the women and children are there taking advantage of their vulnerable situation. And we find this um, it also referenced in Deuteronomy 25 as the, the, the Amalek people um, God again speaking to you don't have to turn there I can read it or if you, Deuteronomy 25 17 so God reflecting on this battle we find in Exodus says remember what Amalek did to you on the ways you came out of Egypt how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. And it's almost, it is this picture of you don't mess with the people of God. You don't mess with his bride because you are in effect attacking God himself. And we, we see this principle even in the New Testament. You think of Jesus coming to Saul of Tarsus and saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And you would think, well, what did Saul do to Jesus? As far as we know, he never met Jesus. But he was attacking the Christians. He was dragging them from their homes and putting them in jail. And Jesus says that as you do to the least of these, my brothers, you do it to me. And that has been true of God. If you come against his people, you end up fighting against God himself. And so Amalek, in his own wickedness, in attacking this helpless, helpless nation, found himself at war with the God of heaven, the Lord of hosts. And God vowed that he would destroy this nation because of what they did and because of their sin against his people. And so in Samuel, this is really the fulfillment of a, a very long history from the time that God first pronounced this judgment to Amalek, actually 200 years probably have passed. 
And even from when God warned the Canaanites of the coming judgment by the hand of Israel, 400 years passed from when God uh, warned them uh, through, through Abraham and to when that actually was carried out. And so we see also with God's pronouncements of judgment over these nations, there is a long time, a lot of opportunity for repentance, for humbling oneself, even as the Ninevites did before this holy God. But these nations did not fear the Lord and sought to take advantage of his people. So we see the Amalek uh, situation. In fact, I just saw the other day um, the Amalek name used, and it was being used in reference to uh, some of the Hamas terrorists that are now attacking Israel, and I know there's all kinds of questions in our mind about this whole situation, which we don't have time to get into now, about uh, what's happening in the Middle East, and how do we view Israel today, and, and all those sort of questions. But I, I saw this name Amalek come up in reference to someone who attacks in a brutal and, and, uh, and just ruthless way. And this is where it comes from. But as we think about the people of Amalek, the, I think our big struggle with the command that God gives to Saul is in dealing with the women, children, and infants specifically. And we see that as well in the news. There's this dilemma. Even our own government, I saw, just gave $10 million uh, to, to aid, and they can't really decide who do we give this to? Are we giving this to, to Israel, or are we giving this to the civilians caught in Gaza, who would seem to be somewhat uh, as collateral damage, not maybe actively involved in the fight? And so we would look at a passage like this and say, well, um, why, why not spare the women and children? Why does God react with such severity towards the Amalekites? And I think this is well... Um, it's important to understand that even when God revealed himself to Moses and spoke to him on the mountain, we find these things true of God, that he is a God who is ready to forgive and show mercy. And I'll just read it so I don't misquote it. Exodus 34, 5. And this is important because this comes at the very uh, nature and, and essence of who God is and, and, and how he has um, revealed himself, Exodus 34, 5. God is speaking to Moses on the mountain, and we read, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and sin, and we say, wonderful, that is a, a marvelous picture of God. That's the, the God that we love and we know. But he goes on and he also says, um, but who will by no, oh, sorry, verse 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so there's a sense in which as the Amalekites war against God and set themselves against God and his people, God is not obligated to show mercy to them. And there is an aspect in which God at times will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children, he says, to the third and fourth generation. 
Because the children are, in that sense, connected to, tied to, maybe even, if you think, even in a, in a family sense, to the sins of their fathers. And we see this play out today as well. Children that are caught up in the sins of their parents, that it oftentimes carries over from generation to generation. And it's not that the Lord can't deliver out of that cycle. But as you think about the Amalekites specifically, it's interesting to, to follow the story forward in uh, 1 Samuel 30, 17. The Amalekites plunder David, carry off his wives and uh, the wives of his men and, and children and possessions. And he has to go out and retrieve them. And how many of you remember the story of Esther? Who was the, the, the villain, if you will, in the story of Esther? Does anyone remember the guy who was trying to destroy Esther and destroy all of the Jews, actually? Um, by the decree of the king, who was the, the guy? Haman? Does that sound familiar? Haman? Well, Haman, we're told in Esther 3.1 and 8.3, he's referred to as Haman the Agite. He is a descendant of the Amalekites. And we see how this generational uh, war against God and his people often carries on. And as I said before, we must understand even our children, the only hope of their salvation, whether infant or, you know, 10 years old or 15 years old, is through the Lord Jesus Christ by his grace, which he purchased at the cross. There is no other pathway to be reconciled to God. So we're born at enmity with God. God is not obligated to save any of us. And while we certainly see, um, you know, the, 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 the love that even Christ would display towards the children. I think there is also this principle that at times God brings the iniquity of the fathers upon the descendants of those nations, and he is just to do so. Though it doesn't always sit well with our 21st century uh, outlook on life, if you will. The idea that some are neutral or innocent or uh, have not done anything to offend God. It's often, well, always us that need to adjust our perspective and not calling God to adjust his. We have to be so careful as we come before the Lord with these issues. Our understanding of sin is so affected by the culture in which we live. We become used to it. We become desensitized to it. I mean, even children's shows now, it's, it's, especially any show that's been made within the last 10 years, almost inevitably, there's going to be some, some implication of homosexuality present in the show. And after, at first, you're kind of abhorred and, and shocked, and then after a while, if you don't, train yourself to, to turn that off, to distance yourself from that, then it, it starts to feel almost a little bit normal. And you see, we fail to understand the offensiveness of these sins before a holy God. We, we fail to understand the, the, the just judgment that they rightly deserve. We live in a culture that celebrates these things. The very things God tells his people are an abominations before him. And so we have to continually remind ourselves 
that the, the standard by which man is going to be judged is not horizontal. It's not our fellow man. It is a vertical standard. We will be judged according to the righteousness of a holy God. And this is why Christ is our only advocate. We cannot stand before this God on our own righteousness. He dwells in unapproachable light. And so if people want to say, yes, well, why is it wrong for a nation to commit genocide today? And yet we see God commanding that in the Old Testament. I think first and foremost, God is the judge of all the earth. He is the creator. He is the giver of life. And so he alone has the authority to judge and to execute judgment. We, and any nation today, I would argue, does not have that sanction. Israel here is acting as an extension of the judge of the universe, executing just judgment upon a wicked nation. But we, are in and of ourselves, do not have the authority. Israel today does not have the authority. The Hamas do not have the authority. Russia does not have the authority to decisively decide to annihilate a nation simply because they don't like them or they're in conflict with their religion. See, God alone holds the right to judge the nations. And at times, he expresses this judgment throughout history in shocking and vivid ways. And we have to... Uh, really realize that, that he alone carries this authority. And this was certainly the case with the Amalekites. And this is why Paul would say in Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you're heaping burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And you see what Paul's saying? He's not saying, don't avenge yourself because God just wants you to forgive and forget. Rather, it is don't avenge yourself because God is the judge of the earth. He will avenge himself. He will avenge his people, even as we see in Revelation and the martyrs there before the throne of Christ saying, Lord, how long until you avenge our blood upon the earth? And he gives them the white robes of righteousness and says, wait until the fullness of your number has come in. And then the outpouring of God's wrath upon this world. He is not indifferent to this, the wickedness of man. But even as Peter says, he is patient. He is waiting until the gospel goes forth and all those for whom Christ had died have been brought into Christ. All the sheep brought into the sheep, in through the sheep gate and then the gate will close and then the wrath and judgment of God will fall. And so lastly, we must consider not only the Amalekites specifically, but we must consider the end of all things. I believe these judgments of God in the Old Testament specifically, they are, yes, in and of themselves, true, just expressions of God's wrath against wicked people. But they ultimately point forward to a final coming judgment that God has promised. They are, uh, in that way, meant to illustrate something of what is coming upon this world for all those who are outside of Christ. And Jesus used it this way in Matthew 24, 36. He, he points out that Noah, 
is a picture, really, of the judgment to come as well. Matthew 24. And I think that we could say that of the judgment upon the Amalekites. We could say that a judgment upon the Canaanites. We can, we can look at those times in which God, through Israel, executes judgment. They are little microcosms of what is coming upon this world. Um, Matthew 24 and 36. Listen to how Jesus uses the judgment that came in Noah's day as a picture of, of what is coming. Oh, sorry, I went to 25. 24, 36. But concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, and one taken and one left. Two men will be grinding at the mill, one taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect him. And of course, in in Jesus' day, speaking to his disciples, there's a real implication here as God, uh, even 70 AD, would bring the Roman army against the Jerusalem, would level it to the ground, not a stone left upon another. And in a real sense, Christ came in judgment upon that city because they had forsaken God. They had broke his covenant. They had rejected his Messiah. A sin which Israel still today has actually not repented of. And so the only hope for Israel is that they would repent of their rebellion against God, their rejection of Christ, and believe upon him who was pierced for their transgression. That is the only hope of Israel. And that's how we should pray. But, but we also see that this, this picture of, of the, the flood that came upon Noah's day, Jesus says, is a picture of my judgment to come. And we often think that it's the wicked who will be left behind and will be raptured out. That's kind of the default position, I think, of many uh, evangelicals in North America. But when you think about it, actually, the picture would be more in line with, with Noah's story if we say the wicked were swept away and the righteous remain and inherit the earth, a new heavens and new earth. That actually fits with the picture of Noah. Uh, a, a somewhat cleansing, a restoration of the earth, a reestablishment of humanity upon it. But the point is simply that, that we must consider the end of all things in light of these severe judgments that God brings about in the Old Testament. They serve as a microcosm of what I believe is coming upon this earth. And as we close, we must also consider that God, as I said, his justice will be satisfied through one of two ways. And it's interesting in uh, Psalm 75, 
in thinking about the, the, the justice of God being satisfied, we have this picture in Psalm 75 of a cup. And Asaph, writing here, uh, says, We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steadily its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. And as we think about God at times pouring out in part this wrath upon the nations, we also realize that in the garden, Jesus, trembling before the wrath of Almighty God, prayed, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. And so most importantly, as we wrestle with these difficult pictures of God's severe judgment, we must also realize that Christ himself, God in flesh, came to the earth and willingly took hold of that cup, which we were destined to drink because of our sin, and Jesus Christ willingly drank it down to the dregs. The wrath of God poured out upon the Son in all of its fury, in all of its vengeance, Pour it out upon Christ the Son so that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God and God be both just and the justifier of those who trust in Him. And so before we bring an accusation against God, we realize that all of this takes place with the backdrop of the cross of Christ, the Lord of glory, the giver of life, the, 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 the Lord of the angel armies himself who, who walked before Israel. He himself coming, dying, suffering, going himself into the, uh, into the winepress of God's wrath. So that all who will flee to Christ will repent and turn will be forgiven and reconciled to God. This is how this leads us to the good news of the gospel. And so we must rejoice in Christ who has satisfied this severe and horrific wrath on our behalf and for all who will trust in him. And I think as we wrestle with these issues, let us remember the big picture, remember uh, redemptive history, understand the unique situation with the Amalekites specifically, and let us also remember the end of all things when we stand before Christ and either plead His blood or we ourselves will drink the wrath of God's fury. We will close there for this morning. And, uh, let's pray. And we'll have a final song. Gracious God in heaven, Lord, we... 
We know that we are so affected by the culture in which we live. Lord, as your people have always battled to be in the world but not of the world, we know that we live in a very arrogant age, especially in the West. Lord, where we have the audacity to celebrate the very sins for which these nations were punished. And Lord, even on the judgment day, many of them will rise up against this day and rebuke us for our lack of belief, Lord. We are an age with, with endless information and knowledge at our fingertips. And yet, Lord, we know that because of the hardness of heart, the deceitfulness of sin, that your spirit must plow up that fallow ground, Lord. It must break the iron bars of our own bondage because we will not humble ourselves before you, our creator and sustainer. So Lord, I pray you keep us from uh, pride. I pray you keep us from um, doubt, Lord, as we look at some of these shocking pictures of your wrath that we would not want to turn and walk away, Lord, but instead we would flee all the more to Christ. We would marvel at at you who, Lord, are both the, the God who forgives us in Christ and also the one who executes judgment upon the wicked. And so, Lord, I pray it would also increase within us urgency to go to a world that's dying and to hold out the gospel of Christ, that they may be saved and spared from the coming wrath. And so we ask you, guide us, Lord, in our thoughts, in our attitudes, our actions. We go into a new week, and we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon preached at Redeeming Grace Bible Church. If you'd like to find out more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church or find other sermons and resources, please visit us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca. We pray that the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. That the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.